millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You are listening to The Sound of London. This is London Estate Loud. I'm Anne Quentin Wolf. And from last week's show about food cycling, we're really moving to the sharp front end of the food business this week. What's the trick to surviving and flourishing in one of London's most competitive commercial areas? How can you turn a two-person startup into a bricks-and-mortar establishment? And how important is reputation? Our adventure starts as many adventures have done with a meeting in Soho Square. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before, just a stone throw from your front door. We're in Soho Square, basking in Mock Tudor sunshine, and my Mock Tudor guest is Michelle Francis. I'm not wearing Mock Tudor outfit, though. I wasn't briefed. <laughs> That's a shame, really. It never occurred to me to do fancy. It's not going to fancy dress is not going to work on the radio, no, but no, it still no, might not, be worth doing. Yeah, yeah. It's not an auditory thing, really, is it? <laughs> the real Mock Tudor. Can you have real Mock Tudor? Here is in front of us the famous Mock Tudor shed in the middle of the square here. Well, Quinton, hello everyone. We are in Soho Square, in the centre of Soho Square, and we're about to embark on a Soho food walk. And we start the Soho food walk in Soho Square, uh, which today is just absolutely littered with people and basking in sunshine. Uh, So it's really rather beautiful. But one of the things that I wanted to point out, which is not food-related at all, uh, but before we start off on our walk, is the Mock Tudor... uh, it's a it's the caretaker's uh, cottage. And this is the grandest caretaker's <laughs> cottage, apart from the one in Trafalgar Square, which is not grand, but odd. Yeah, it is rather odd. Yes, I but, do know But this one. is something quite special. Mm, it sure is. So it is very mock Tudor, uh, but it is, isn't of the Tudor era. Um, but one thing that people are probably not that aware of is that underneath there is a an air raid bomb shelter. Is there really? So that's where, uh, during the Second World War, uh, it was rapidly built. And there's actually a huge area. It's about 3,500 square feet. What, can, we, can we compare that to the square itself? Uh, what, what so would that it look would like? probably take up about a third of the square. It's actually really controversial at the moment. I haven't actually heard the, any progress on this, but last year in January, uh, Westminster City Council suggested that they would put it up for sale. 
the actual air raid shelter. They would uh, put it out to tender, and there are a lot of the reason that I'm including it is because there are, there's a food element to it. There are a lot of restaurants that were interested in bidding on that, so they wouldn't get access to the uh, to the above ground mock Tudor cottage, but they would get access to the air raid shelter downstairs, and the fit out would probably be several million. But that's just in the in the process of of being sorted at the moment. That sounds like a great idea, mm. or a, a thumping nightclub. Yeah, yeah. I think they ruled out thumping nightclub. Oh, they really. And, uh, yeah, bars, etc. But yeah, food, seems in possibly. keeping with the area. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Or uh, the other option was um, for a gymnasium, so that would be more helpful for some of the muscle merry gym bunnies around here. Oh, that's true. Mm-hmm. I would quite like to see yeah. all of the people who could fit into the area below <laughs> going into that uh, tiny building, and it would look like a, yes. a, a 70s comedy. Sketch. Yeah, yeah, a bit, a bit Monty Python, I think. So, why? So- why did that? Do you happen to know why? Mm-hmm. It's done in this mock Tudor style. When was this put up? Uh, so it was in the 1800s, and uh, prior to that, this this actual square was called King Square, and it was given to the, the whole area of Soho was actually given to one of King Charles II's illegitimate sons, sons, James Scott, who was the Duke of Monmouth. Now, history isn't my area; food is my area. But I just give a bit of general sort of background. Well, Duke of Monmouth didn't do terribly well. No, he did not do terribly well at all, and he he did okay from a pr- property development point of view, uh, given the Great Fire of London and a lot of people were looking for a sort of rehousing. But yes, his he his um, from a staying alive point of view, exactly, yeah. his fortunes ended ended very badly, and there was a statue of. King Charles II that was located in the centre and it really was the landowners in the sort of 1800s who then gathered together, rallied together and put in to create a, yeah, I guess it was a monument to him and then some decades later the pollution actually eroded a lot of that sculpture and they decided to put this up and really who knows what the thinking was at that stage. Because yeah, I don't feel enlightened there. there at no, all. No, 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 you're not enlightened because I'm not enlightened but yeah, it's, it's one of those perplexing things really. Well I like its out of placeness mm. very much indeed. Mm. And we're here, well it's the epicentre of gastronomy yeah. uh, just on the way up to see here, I've walked past all the banjos and keyboards of Denmark Street and just as I was entering Soho Square there was a lovely aroma really complex, sophisticated Fragrance being emitted by that building over there. House of Charity. House of Charity. Yeah. And it seems to be a dining establishment. It looks like fine dining Uh, as I glance through the window. It is, but it's a members club. Mm. So it's not really open to everyone. But yeah, they do occasionally have open days there and, and the food is quite good but uh, it's not included on our walk because it's not uh, it's not that democratic it's not open to all all and sundry uh, but we might get going on our walk yeah let's do perhaps that. the thing with this walk is it's not so much historical as uh, really focusing on contemporary eating in Soho so you know what's hot at the moment what are the influences where have things come from and where are they heading to can I check your credentials at this point? How do you yeah. keep your finger on the pulse? One does need to verify that. Uh, I, I am actually a chef by background. I had a restaurant in Australia. You can probably tell that my accent is not particularly pure, posh British. Uh, I've lived in London for about six years now, and I also run a supper club. So I sort of keep my finger on the pulse through those different various sort of foodie associations. So you're um, running into a lot of people as well who are keen on their food and they know what's good. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, and it's it's a passion of mine. So, uh, I think the thing is, when it is a passion, it's it's what you look for. So, when I'm 
on Twitter, it's I want I want food updates. When I'm Instagram, I want food updates. You know, hot dinners is my bible. You know, just to know what's what's going on. Um, we might just stop here for a, for a brief minute, um, Quinton, and I know that the listeners won't be able to see what we're seeing. We're actually... Are you, are you sure? <laughs> we're very perceptive. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've got a hidden camera here somewhere, haven't you? And I haven't done my hair. You see that speck in the sky? Yeah, That, that yeah. is the London okay. Instant drone. We're in Carlisle Street, we should say. Yes, so we are on the corner of uh, Dean Street and Carlisle Street and it's sort of not accidental that we've stopped here uh, because one of the things that I wanted to talk about was... Um, food trends and influences and I guess two of the big food trends at the moment or influences have come out of supper clubs and we talked a little bit about that earlier but also street food. Street food is really hugely influencing the development of restaurants and the dining scene in general and you can sort of really see how things filter through from uh, street food and we'll visit Berwick Street Market shortly and have a little look at that and get a bit of a sense of the vibe down there but through to influencing bricks and mortar restaurants. Are you thinking of stuff like gourmet burgers? I'm actually thinking more along the lines of, well, the reason we've stopped here is we're right out in front of Pizza Pilgrims. And Pizza Pilgrims started their life out. They had a van. On the back of the van, they built a wood-fired pizza oven. And they sold their pizzas from Berwick Street Market. And this is just because it was a couple of guys who were interested in making pizzas and they'd been to Italy and got very sort of fascinated by it. Uh, and so they built such an amazing clientele that they actually sourced their finance for this bricks and mortar establishment through crowdfunding so it's through the process of of doing something on a really small scale which is a financially really manageable that allows you then to sort of scale it up and do it in a in a more formalized setting so when i say it's influencing i I think it's about people trialing out their concept and seeing whether or not it works and then sort of scaling up. So there's another restaurant in um, or restaurant in Lexington Street called Bao, which is really difficult to get into. It's tiny. It, they do Korean bao buns. And that is, again, something that's sprung up out of street food. So perhaps burgers, but actually when I'm talking about it, I'm talking sort of that slightly more cutting edge, more innovative, more... You, you know, just testing out the concept and then taking it somewhere else. So I, I should jump sorry. in and because yeah, I'm course. aware that there is, in fact, a company called Gourmet Burgers or yes, something very similar to that. Is. And and I was using the term generically rather mm. than uh, specifically referring to any uh, firm by that Other name. Burgers are Other burgers available. are available, and I'm sure Gourmet Burgers are uh, delicious. Great burgers, terrific. <laughs> um, but uh, it seems to me that that's a terrifically dangerous, really move, risky, brave to yeah. invest in bricks and mortar, and yes. particularly in a expensive place like Soho. Absolutely. But, you know, they've now got a number of different establishments, so they've got one in Kingley Court as well. So it's worked for them and it's paid off for them, but I'm sure that there are just as many small-scale vendors that trialled out their concept at a street food market and haven't gone anywhere with it or decided themselves not to go anywhere with it. A quick word, I think, is necessary on the area in general because, of course, you'll know if you've been here that the place is under a massive transformation at the moment, Crossrail, the upgrade of Tottenham Court Road station, centre point entirely shrouded in scaffolding, 
as you come out of the station there, you're looking at the ruins of a lot of buildings that are being demolished or rebuilt. How long have you been doing this tour? So I've been doing the tour for almost two years, and that doesn't sound like a very long period of time, but I've seen incredible shifts and changes in Soho in that time. And I think this sort of term gentrification really applies firmly to Soho at the moment. And I think, you know, it's it's organic. It's like, a, a, you know, a lot of places in the world like New York, you know, there's a whole range of different places that have changed over a period of time. But for Soho to retain some of what is precious about it is, I mean, that's the thing that attracts people. It's the eclecticness of the nature of the place. It's the fact that it's a home for everyone, that really there are any number of different types of people and, and people with different types of lifestyles that, that come to the hub of Soho and I think whilst developers will want to create penthouses and people will want to buy penthouses I think someone somewhere has to be really careful not to squash that germ that little pearl that is so fabulous about Soho. There's a story we hear a lot in London in all sorts of different areas we are looking down Carlisle Street towards the Nadler and there is a well that the, the creature over the doorway would fit well in an Avengers movie I think Mm -hmm. half angel half dragonfly yeah I'm a bit worried about her actually because I don't know whether you can see from here but she actually has about 200 metal pins stuck into her so I've not researched the background of that but that distresses me well, yes, that's very good. Uh, in my unconscious, they were pigeon pins. Okay. But they're okay. sticking out sideways as well, aren't they? No, yeah, I don't they think are, they can rather. be. Yeah, yeah. Now, she's the victim in that one. So let's just head uh, left down Dean Street and continue along. Well, I've always rather liked Soho in the sunshine. This brings out uh, people into the cafe tables outside the buildings. Mm. And people are a little bit freer and easier. This is what I like in Soho in particular. is a chap who's making no effort to fit in with the alternative vibe. He's yes. entirely done out in tweed riding his <laughs> upright bicycle. Yes, I do love that. You get a bit of everyone and a bit of everything. Um, Quentin, we're going to head down St Anne's Court. We're just going to cross over and not get run over Yeah, so at the same time that he's in his tweed, uh, there are lots of workmen around. There's a, a woman in a sleeping bag uh, puffing a fag. There's worker people... Worker, worker people, people. <laughs> office worker people, because um, of course Soho is the home to a lot of multimedia production houses, post-production houses. 20th Century Fox, of course, have got their head office in Soho Square. I wonder so, if they regret being called 20th yeah. Century yeah. Fox. Feeling a bit dated, huh? Mm. Mm. Zellman's Meats, which is uh, a place that we're just walking past now. Uh, This is really interesting because it was originally set up last year as a seafood restaurant which was called Rex and Mariano. And Rex and Mariano own the Burger and Lobster chain uh, and it was brilliant as a seafood restaurant but it just didn't do the dollars for them so you know they would do lots of things like ceviche and when we're looking at sort of food trends and influences a lot of the sort of South American style of cooking was filtering down into um, different establishments but towards the end of last year to outcry loud and clear from the food scene they actually closed the seafood restaurant down and they're focusing a lot on on meat now now i guess it remains to be seen as to whether or not this is successful for them but their thinking along was along the lines of the fact that soho has got such a big lunchtime population 
those people weren't buying seafood meals in the middle of the day, but they might be inclined to have some of the uh, Chateaubriand or some of the short ribs or they've got a brisket uh, sandwich and chips. So they're, they're sort of trying to cover all those bases. They've got a dirty steak. Oh, yeah, yeah. We won't. Well, I don't like the sound of that. <laughs> no, no, not for the Londonist audience, no. Quentin. <laughs> Tidy steak, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the gorgeous things about Soho streets is that the, they are very meandery. They are sort of little laneways, uh, cobblestoned often, and these, these aren't cobblestones, but, um, you know, there's a, a lovely sense of history and sense of place when you're walking down some of the Soho streets. There's a bit of that thing where you've got to know where you're going and that's insider status that goes along with being familiar with the area. I think that's right actually. I mean it's it's the same for where, wherever you go I guess but um, in Soho it's it's particularly relevant I think because the laneways are so windy. We could duck down there for instance or we could continue along here. We might duck down there but one of the things I did want to point out was at the end of this street there is a very well-known uh, bakery chain and one of the things I think that's really interesting in terms of food trends at the moment is this desire that people have to connect with the people that are creating the food that they're eating or the chocolate that they're nibbling on or the craft beer that they're, they're consuming. And I think, you know, when you think back to sort of the 15, 1600s, everything that we ate or drank was artisan produced. Because it had to be, because we really didn't have the means for mass production. Take us through the Industrial Revolution and we could create things like tinned spam, for better or worse. But I think now people are really looking for that connection. You know, who's making the food that I'm, that I'm eating? Now, not all the time. And obviously there's a premium on that sort of food because it is very small-scale production. But one of the things that I've noticed is that it, it really raises a bit of a moral dilemma because the word artisan... When do you start and when do you stop using that word? There is a bakery chain which started out of an individual baker, a bakery. It's expanded now and they don't bake the bread on the premises. They, they bake it in a factory and then they drive it in. Their banner on the side of their building says Artisan Bakery. You know, there's a lot in words and because what does artisan really mean? Yes, I can think of another bakery exactly the same thing and the mm. prices would suggest that mm. there are people crafting each individual loaf with love and affection. Yeah, love and affection, yeah. And it's scooped past this place. And when you look in the window, it um, it's very carefully been crafted such that you might think if you were a visitor to London that it really was an individual bakery with you know, someone downstairs rolling out little loaves and, and making cakes. But this is nothing new, is it? If you think about the pub scene and some of those big pub chains and each one is designed to you know, just have a few local twists and mm. a, a little bit of a flavour of the area, mm. but actually it's part of some big pub company mm. and the landlord and yeah. is unable to make any money. Of course it's the same thing, but it doesn't mean it's right. I mean, they probably wouldn't call themselves a boutique brewery. <laughs> but, you know, along those lines, there'd be something that creates that sense because that's what they know, that's what we as consumers are looking for. We're looking for this individual connection with, again, with what we're eating or drinking. And, you know, a bakery which, which calls itself artisan suggests that it is small-scale production. Well, I think for balance, we've got to acknowledge that any inference we're making about the provenance of these hot cross buns, for example, mm. is entirely in our own heads, and I'm, yes. I'm sure they're not Indeed. claiming anything that isn't true. Now, we're going to walk across the road, and we're going to walk past a, a, a chocolatier, which is a, an artisan chocolatier, who does make all of his chocolates in the basement. Crossing over the road now. Choose. 
When did you say your first hot cross bun, by the way? Oh, dear. Uh, I've been a hot cross bun lover for a very long time. No, no, I don't mean in your life. <laughs> I, I mean in the, in the annual cycle. <laughs> oh, heavens above. <laughs> A weird question. Like, I mean, yeah, it was a weird question, question anyway. I did think it was an odd question. Okay, but uh, okay. I think I saw them. It was probably January when when I saw them out in supermarkets. Yeah, I think yeah. I've got the same. Yeah. I have a feeling I clocked one before Christmas. Really? Oh, yeah. that's wrong. That's have just a, all wrong. Listen, have a look at my my Twitter feed if yeah. you if you dare at wow. N Quentin Wolf, and I tweeted uh, I tweeted one. It must have been around Christmas time because I no. tweeted season's greetings. That's wrong. That's just all wrong. Mm. Let's go inside to this fabulous chocolate shop. And, um, of course, the listeners can't take a big, deep breath in, but, Quentin, I would encourage you to. It's gorgeous. Okay, here we go. Good grief. I think I'm drunk. Uh, Well, the uh, nostril is currently full of rose. Mm -hmm. There's lots of subtle liqueur-y fragrances going on. Of course, cocoa. Mm-hmm. Oh, wonderful. Well, that's the podcast over. I'm staying here. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are now in um, the fabulous boutique chocolatier uh, store in Wardour Street of Paul A. Young. And Paul A. Young is one of London's most renowned chocolatiers. He's actually won his tr- chocolate truffle has won uh, the World Truffle World Chocolate Awards three times, gold uh, medal three times. He's now um, disqualified because he's actually one of the judges, but that's the only reason. So this place is particularly special because I think, as con- in, in contrast, to what we were talking about earlier, Quinton, around artists and etc., and what makes it and what makes it um, acceptable in terms to use these guys make all of these truffles downstairs in the kitchen now they only have uh, a slab of marble for tempering a stove top for warming the chocolate and some molds everything is done by hand the packaging was is also done by hand and, and all of the different uh, decorations done by hand they're so they have no preservatives and no additives in them and so they only last for seven days quite impressive that that's the level of labour and love that goes into creating these fantastic chocolates. It does uh, strike me that there are no prices on view. Yeah. <laughs> well, the more you buy, the cheaper it is. But they are expensive. How much would you pay for a truffle? £2 per truffle, with a reduction as you get uh, a larger box. But the thing is, and I would uh, I would love to get you to try one of the sea-salted caramel chocolates, uh, if you must, because the thing is, you could have, let's think about it, for two Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Could probably three Mars bars at a supermarket and I guarantee that you put this in your mouth and you squash down on it and you won't need another one. So can you bear with me while I get one for you? You're going to do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm liking this do it even more. Well, thank you very much indeed. Just all in one because it's thank quite runny. All in one. In we go. Okay. So while Quinton's um, crunching down on that, the recommendation was to bite into it in one go because it has a delicious, silky, buttery, caramelised feeling, which is very liquidy. So it's encased by a um, beautiful 70% dark chocolate, but it's not super... Sometimes dark chocolate can actually sort of stick to the roof of your mouth. Uh, It's not super sort of pull your lips in. And then the sweetness of the caramel, the liquid caramel, is just the most magical marriage in my view. But over to you, Quinton, what do you think? Well, uh, I've been transported to another place. Uh, yeah, that really does take things to a whole other level. And, and you're, I, well, I don't know if I'm imagining this, but I really do feel like the purity of the flavours mm-hmm. is something that mm-hmm. is coming through. Mm-hmm. I think delightful is the mm-hmm. word I'm it looking for. It is delightful. It absolutely is delightful. And so you know, what I try to convey to people is that the level of passion, the level of labour that goes into creating that one tiny truffle is worth two pounds. Because for me... Are you on a commission? <laughs> not at all, Actually, I pay for all of the food that I consume and that my guests on my tour consume. I I love um, I love embracing people that are doing the thing that they do, really, because, you know, Paul A. Young could make a lot of money cutting corners, but he doesn't. You know, he creates this amazing experience for you, for me, you know, for us, and I think that really needs to be important. Oh, I sound a bit religious now, don't do, I? Yeah, the, the zeal of the convert. <laughs> exactly, indeed. Uh, we better get out of here before we decide to stay. Well, the cascade of deliciousness is still with me I might take this opportunity to throw a break in, I'll be savouring meanwhile here's a very important message The Sound of London, Londonist Out Loud with N. Quentin Wolfe Listen free every week on your favourite podcast platform, subscribe via iTunes and get great extra content at Londonist.com Tweet the show at Londonist Sound and see pictures of all our guests on the Londonist Out Loud stream on Instagram you are listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolf, and with me is Michelle Francis, and we're on a food tour of Soho. And we've just turned into the uh, cobbles of Berwick Street Market. We can see the Pan Asian pit stop booth at the end here, and an assortment of glamorous bags on the next door along, fruit and veg further down. And I've heard a lot about Berwick Street Market, and I think I've been down here a few times without really clocking it properly. Mm, Yeah. So Berwick Street Market is actually the oldest market in London. It was uh, established about 200 years ago, and it's actually um, where the very first tomato came in in 1880, and then sort of 10 years on, the very first grapefruit. Uh, So... Now, can I just challenge you for a second? Yeah, yeah. 200... I don't really believe that the oldest market in London would be only 200 years old. Okay, I'll send you references, Clinton. 
Listener, what do you think about this? I don't know. I would, I'd like to have a huddle yeah. and, uh, okay. and discuss this, really. All right. Let's... 200 years doesn't seem, uh, doesn't seem remotely long enough. Well, okay, let's bring in the uh, bring in the listeners. Bring in the, yes, mm. okay, yes. If you have a view on this, please make contact via the usual means. Berwick Street Market, possibly the oldest market. Yes, in possibly, London. possibly. But so Berwick Street Market, it is actually in the process. It's a really good example of an area of Soho that is in a huge process of gentrification. So when we we look down here, Quinton, you'll see that on the right hand side there's a whole board of hoardings uh, and scaffolding, and that's actually where they're taking down a lot of. Um, what was council housing and they're converting it into penthouse housing. Converting it into something nobody can afford. Yes, exactly, absolutely. Turning it from useful housing into investment. Yeah, that's quite right. So I think it really will change the fabric of the area. You can also see there's a little duck there on a sign. That's actually the home of the duck and rice, which is one of so people in the foodie world would be familiar with Alan Yao, who's really one of well, I, I call him one of my sort of Soho foodie identities. He's certainly picked up a lot of different establishments and and really changed the, the feel of eating. He took this place, which was the Endurance Pub, one of London's sort of older, more established uh, sticky carpet pubs, and he's turned it into what he calls a Chinese gastro pub. Now, we'll walk past it and you'll see that there are some fantastic copper vats of of beer, boutique beer, um, but again, it's really catering to a much higher sort of end market. But uh, no, just a, a quick yeah. re- reflection on that is that we've seen we've got really comfortable with the idea of Thai food being mixed in with pubs. That seems mm-hmm. to be ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. It surprises me to realise that Chinese food much less so. Why would that be? That. Um, I think that uh, that Chinese food and alcohol is is tricky. So uh, Thai food, you tend to to have um, beer associated more with Thai food. I think Chinese food less less so. I mean, Alan Yao has certainly he's pushed the boundaries very consistently throughout his career, and this was one of the things that he just had in his mind that he, he really wanted to do. But I think it's a really good observation, though. I mean, is, is it just that we're here terrifically set in our ways to, to that extent? For example, you'd have no problem ordering a super hot curry and quaffing a few lagers with it. There's no reason at all why we shouldn't have gone down that other thing. Well, I guess not, but, I mean, we've had a much longer, more established tradition of eating Indian food, given the, the, the Raj period and, um, and the East India Company, and we've had a lot longer period, I think, also with Thai food um, from the sort of the 60s explorers, and I don't know how many people travelled to China and, you know, our version of what Chinese food is, is very manufactured. It's a a very boarded sort of concept, I think. Just on the subject of international travel, being as you're an international (laughs) traveller, is there a place where you can eat, I mean, I don't know what I'd even think of apart from barbecues when I think of Australian cuisine. Uh, I'm sure there is lots that is simply not coming to mind, but are there uh, Australian dining establishments around? Yeah. So Australian food itself as a cuisine is really, it's not well known. And I think that, you know, you've you've said it yourself, do you, you think of barbecue, you think of, you know, throw a shrimp on the barbie. You know, occasionally people go off onto a tangent of thinking about kangaroo meat. Uh, but actually what I think 
of and what I've realised now actually not living in Australia is Australian food is we have a much more organic sense of fusion food. So we marry a lot of very good quality ingredients uh, with a lot of Southeast Asian techniques, food techniques and also ingredients. So, And we do it in a much more, when I say organic, what I mean is that quite often if you get fusion food that's, that's made elsewhere, it can feel very contrived. It can feel very much like uh, here's a potato and let's put a bit of um, lemongrass with that potato and there's fusion food. And I think Australian food because... I'm not, I'm not eating it. I'm not eating there, wherever that is. I do think that Australian food, because we're so close to Southeast Asia and we had a huge um, uh, influx of immigrants, particularly from Vietnam, we do do that sort of Asian fusion food a lot better. So one place that I think does that brilliantly here in London is Granger & Co. So there's a couple of of outlets. There's one in Granary Square uh, in King's Cross and there's another one in Notting Hill and another one in Clerkenwell. And that's a guy, Bill Granger, who came over probably actually around the time that I moved over no connection there and I just feel lazy having not done nearly as much as he's done in that time but yeah he does that really 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 well so he'll do a an Asian slaw with a chicken schnitzel you know nothing radical but just really lovely gentle and and again focus being on really good quality fresh ingredients because we do get access to that a lot more frequently than than here yeah and I can kind of imagine that resulting in a a fresh style Mm -hmm. as well as fresh flavors I think that's right so there's a I think there's definitely a zinginess about a Australian food when it's done well. There's a freshness, there's a liveliness, there's a there's a, a, a piquancy to Australian food that you don't find necessarily in other cuisines. No, absolutely, and particularly not perhaps in British cuisine, which I, I think is still making a good fist of it, but mm. still working hard to shrug off the idea of boiling everything to death. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, when I first came to London for a visit about, oh, this will be displaying my age, but about 20 years ago, I didn't think I, there was any way in the world I would ever live here because I didn't think I'd be able to eat anything. Uh, It was awful, absolutely awful. It was chips, it was mashed potato. I mean, I was on a budget too. I was a student, so it probably affected things. But I think now the food scene in London is so diverse and so eclectic and so lively. It's brilliant. Um, But I do think there's still a ways to go. Shall we head off intrepidly down Barrack Street? Mm, Of course, just throwing back to uh, earlier in the programme, we talked a little bit about some of the street food that has sprung up from Berwick Street Market. We talked a bit about uh, the Pizza Pilgrim Boys, whose business has sprung up from a van with a wood-fired pizza on the back of it selling their pizza through Berwick Street. And there's been many other different establishments that have popped up from testing themselves at the water at Berwick Street Market. Uh, Today there's a a mix of different food places as well as some fabric shops and flower stalls. It's the sort of place that actually doesn't translate very well on the weekends, though, unfortunately, because a lot of this, a lot of the food elements of Berwick Street Market uh, are really here existing for the office staff, office workers. We're just about to pass Soho Dairy, which is another brilliant little start-up, I guess you'd say. They are really intent on bringing in fresh milk from the countryside uh, and offering an alternative to supermarket milks. Glancing at the tortillas on the next stool, there are some examples plated up. 
Uh, they look absolutely looks delicious. Absolutely gorgeous, Quentin. You can see the mm. beautiful butter just bubbling up there. This and is a this is a large pan, and it's all uh, fluffing up. This is a fluff, mm. fluffy tortilla. It's a fluffy tortilla, exactly. I can see we've got tortilla with black pudding and uh, possibly red pepper in there. So, Quentin, as you as you can see, this is the sort of food that you don't. I mean, whilst we we eat a lot of tapas food, um, it is the sort of food that you wouldn't necessarily find uh, in a restaurant on its own. All these different types of of tortilla, and they're very reasonably priced. So, four pounds for, for a plain tortilla, and and five pounds for a filled one. We have some of the flamboyancy of Soho that we're passing now: costumes, incense sticks. A lot of material shops down here, actually. Yeah, so this has traditionally been a bit of a fabric um, hood, and a lot of the these places were, have now been pushed out from... They had their shops at the basement of this big uh, apartment building, which is, as we were talking about, is being um, reconstructed now for penthouse living. Uh, a lot of these hardware stores, again, they, they actually had little shops, and they're now they've just got a, a stall on the street. This is one of my favourite street food places here. They do their own falafel, so it's called uh, Jerusalem Kitchen. They do, they make their own... Our arch enemy has arrived. (laughs) This is the trolley moving over cobbles. Oh, yeah, okay. We're trying to... Yeah, (laughs) okay. So they they make their own bread for the falafel. They make their own falafel, obviously, as you would expect. They cook off their aubergine. And just the level of um, purity in the food is phenomenal. And I don't even like falafels. And I really, really, I, I love these guys. And they make all their own... (laughs) <laughs> it doesn't matter, thank you. <laughs> must, what they make there must remain forever a mystery. Oh, you're a thank you. Now, I should explain what's just happened here. A man has just rushed up in a fashion that would normally be alarming in Soho, and he's thrust an object into yeah. Michelle's hand. A long, thin, wrapped object. Um, I, would, I would run a mile. Let's not uh, get, get into any more definition around that. All my adjectives have, have gone from me. Um, but where we are standing, though, Quinton, <laughs> well, is... Me in, I can't, you can't leave me in that level that of mystery. Half, haven't I? <laughs> so this is a... It's about 12 inches long. Yeah. <laughs> and rather... Discreetly sturdy. wrapped. Mm. Yes. So we have actually it, been Michelle? given a falafel from the Jerusalem kitchen. Do and they know you? No, they don't. They're not even on my walk. This is purely from a genuine recommendation from me because I do love the way they do their falafels. And I know you're sort of probably thinking, well, a falafel, you know, shalafel, they're all the same. But when you have someone who makes their own bread and then makes their own hummus and then makes their own pickles and then they make their own actual balls of falafels and it's not a mix and they're not just adding water and making them into balls, it, what you're eating tastes different. And no, so, no, absolutely. There's an Italian restaurant just around around the corner from here where I learnt this lesson that it has very little to do with the, the name of the ingredients it's to do with the quality of the ingredients and you can keep exactly. it exceptionally simple yeah. and put two or three very very you yeah. know piece of cheese piece of bread mm. uh, a bit of asparagus mm. and it can blow your mind mm. if the ingredients are, are, are delicious mm. and well sourced yeah very true I absolutely believe that and I think it's really interesting because one of the other trends that are happening a bit at the moment and it sort of harks back to the Jerusalem falafel kitchen there it's around middle eastern 
food. And when you think about the best Middle Eastern food, it really is the simplicity of it. It really is it paired back and cooked in a really, really simple way. And I do think that Britain is having a bit of a flirtation with Middle Eastern food at the moment. A lot of it can be credited to Yotamot Alenghi, who has really sort of launched, I guess it's a um, familiarity with, with Middle Eastern food as a cuisine that's beyond a falafel. So where you might get some of the ingredients and use them in, you might find Middle Eastern ingredients now popping up in gastro pubs. So you, you'll find pomegranate molasses and sumac and dukkha and other different ingredients, but they're not necessarily being done in a purest sense, just coming back to our earlier conversation around fusion. But I do think that's shifted when you look at old-style British food 10, 15, 20 years ago, the melding of different ethnicities into an overall food pot has come a really long way. What about, and I'm asking this with uh, the place in mind that we were talking about earlier on where they've had to shift their menu quite substantially, what about the loyalty to particular kinds of cuisine in a world where in, in most areas uh, we want something new and we want it yesterday? Mm. Do particular kinds of food stick around for very long? Different kinds of dining? Are they? Is it a fast turnover of styles? Mm. I think there is definitely something very faddish in the food world. You know, it really is the new shiny bauble that, that everyone runs after. And I think that because the world of blogging has become so huge and those bloggers and those Instagrammers and those social media fanatics, they're all looking for something new. So I think definitely people are looking for the next thing. But I also think at the same time that if an an eatery does something really, really well, it will retain its following. There's a seafood restaurant around the corner from here in um, Brewer Street, which has been there for 20 years. And with the rents of Soho and with the change of demographics within Soho and with the fickleness of eaters, it's quite remarkable that they've been able to stay there for that long and yet they are chock-a-block and you really have to queue up to get in so so there is a bit of both of those things going on I think. And, and what's their strategy is it adapt and survive or stay the same and establish yourself out? i think it's a, i think it's i think it's do what we do well so they're they're into their, their thing is seafood they've got a fantastic turnover they 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 bring it all in very fresh uh they do offer some non seafoody elements but none of it's very adventurous none of it's very radical they just do it particularly well it is lovely and their vibe their the environs are very soho so you know there's a massive mirror ball in the middle of the restaurant it's an old it's actually an old um french butchery it was you're going to correct me on this but it was allegedly um the, first, the first ever french first butchery. ever french butchery in 1908 <laughs> but let's see whether uh, your listeners will be able to correct that Um, But that's what I'm led to believe. And so they've still got a lot of the old bits and pieces paraphernalia from its life as a butchery, as well as melding it with life in 2016. So they've got this huge mirror ball, which is just fantastic and uh, a gorgeous bar and yeah so I, I think in that instance it's it's a small space so they'd probably do maybe 30 covers um, so that their their rent is probably quite high but they are very established and they really do you know continue to do what they're doing really really well I think that's their their answer it's not everyone's but it, that is their answer we could continue to enjoy what you're doing very very well but we're pretty much out of time already which is it's gone incredibly fast and uh, like a good meal, 
No, does this work with food? I was about to say uh, you should uh, leave the diner wanting more, but that's probably the one area where you really shouldn't. Yeah, no. <laughs> leave the diner stuffed. So <laughs> we'll have to come back again. Well, well it sounds good to me. And in the meanwhile, if people want to find you and the and accompany you around Soho, how would they go about doing so? Well, I'd be delighted if that was the case. They could check out my website, which is... Um, has this noise just started up because I'm about to promote myself? <laughs> um, no, my website... <laughs> which is a London from scratch, or one word, .co.uk. And I do, I do Soho food tours, and I also do uh, Malibone food tours. So I'd be delighted if anyone wanted to come along with me, because uh, it is something that I do... The, que- the question is, will the quality of the falafel compensate for yes. that intrusion on the show? I think it will. Yeah, do you? Yeah, yeah. It's a pretty good one. It's a pretty good one. Oh. I'll share it with you, Quinton. Actually, I'll give it to you. <laughs> or, or is that bad? Is that sort of... I don't know, yeah. You know, there's an ethical dilemma to be... exposure or something. Should we, should we solve the ethical dilemma, dilemma. Off, uh, off air? Yeah, yes. indeed. All right. Michelle Francis, thanks very much. Thanks, Quinton. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Michelle Francis. Thanks to, to Yannick Pucci and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolfe. Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.